0: If you brought your Bible this morning, feel free to uh, begin moving to the book of James and James chapter 4. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab a Bible back there at our welcome table and keep it. Uh, James chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 this morning. Um, As we uh, all obviously have the hurricane uh, on our minds and the recovery efforts that are just now beginning, um, I will quote what Pastor Heath Zuniga said to us two Sundays ago as he talked about mercy, uh, deed, word and deed ministry to others. He said, you can't do everything, but you can do something. And I think those are wise words. So I would encourage all of us to continue in an attitude of gratefulness uh, in the ways that God has blessed and cared for and protected us, uh, and in a spirit of prayerfulness for all those, whether we know them personally or not, who are Uh, beginning the process of recovery both in southwest Florida and in Cuba and various areas of the Caribbean, Um, but also to look for ways to be active to care for and to serve these folks, whether that be physically going and helping with uh, cleanup efforts, uh, whether that be sending money to a variety of different qualified Christian organizations and church ministries that are going to be over there and are probably already there, Um, Or that be gathering of resources and bringing resources to people. Let's find ways that we as a church and personally can be invested in the lives of those folks, practically showing the love of the gospel. Uh, As we look to James chapter 4 here, and we are winding down over the next several weeks, this series entitled, What It Looks Like to Talk the Talk and Walk the Walk uh, of Following Christ. Here in James 4, we have what I would say is probably the most hard-hitting uh, passage of the entire book. It is probably the most in your face passage within the entire book because James is dealing with a church in his era that is filled with sin. Uh, not unlike the church of 2022, that we continue to struggle and we continue to need God's grace and God's power in our lives day by day. And here in this passage, we'll see in just a moment that James is going to call those believers then and our hearts today. Away from love of the world and the things of the world, and back to a heart that is filled with love for Christ and overflows with that love for Christ towards other people. Um, He's going to remind us that the gospel that saves us is also the gospel that changes us every single day. And and I'm going to suggest to you here as we read in just a moment that there are really five areas that James wants to challenge his people today to, I'll use the phrase, check your heart to check your heart this morning. So let's begin by reading God's word together. This is James 4, 1 through 17. The Lord says this to us this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Thus far, the reading of God's in your face word this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that it brings conviction. Thank you that it is a mirror that reminds us of our sinfulness, but in a much more powerful and necessary sense, it reminds us of your holiness. It reminds us of your goodness. And so, Father, we are desperately in need of this grace of which you speak because the sins which you have written on this page, Father, in many ways, we are guilty. And as a people, as your church worldwide, Father, we stand before you in need of your grace. We pray for your forgiveness afresh, and we pray for a fresh movement of your spirit in our lives, Lord, that we might obey. Teach us to follow you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Five areas this morning, Jesus is calling us to turn our hearts back to him. Number one we see is this, a heart dominated by pleasure-seeking. We see this in verses one through three. Number one, a heart dominated by pleasure seeking. Do you covet what others have? And is your heart obsessed with finding the pleasures of this world? Is what James wants to ask us. James tells us that the fighting that he sees within his church is actually caused at its root by jealousy, by envy. And what should immediately shock us is James is not talking about the world out there, right? He is talking about the church in here. He is talking to brothers and sisters in Christ and goes so far as to say that there was actually a murder that took place in some sense within the church there because of their ungodly passions, The Bible does not give us any more details as to what that may have looked like, but I do think, based on every page what we read in James, that we should take that literally. He is not speaking figuratively. That there was some amount of jealousy, anger, envy that led one person in the church to take the life of another person in church. Now, you may say, oh, no, 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 that that, that couldn't possibly be literal. I would reference for you, if we go back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have a little story, don't we, about a king whose name was David and a husband and wife named Uriah and Bathsheba. And we know in that situation that David, as a believer, did this very thing, envy, jealousy, that ended in the murder of a brother. So the early church, it is fair to say, had issues. The early church had problems, and again, I will say the church of 2022 worldwide and in this room, we have problems. Oh, how we need the grace of God. The Bible here uses the word passions. In Greek, that word passions is the word hedon, or perhaps pronounced hedone, H-E-D-O-N-E, and it means a carnal or a sensual desire, unholy desire desires expressed in an unholy way. From that Greek word, we get the English word hedonism. Maybe you've heard of hedonism. Hedonism is the belief that pleasure is the chief good and purpose in life. If you're not sure where that exists, see anywhere in any aspect of American culture today. The belief that pleasure is the chief good in life. We live, brothers and sisters, in a pandemic of obsession over comforts, over entertainments, over drugs, over alcohol, over technology, over food, over power, over sex, pornography, money, homes, cars, more, more, more. What James saw then, if James were here today, he would see within our world and within our churches as well. But, I would say, particularly as believers in Christ, the older that we get, there is a reality that seems to, sense that to settle in, a maturing. And that is the more that I chase the pleasures of this life, the more that I realize that in the end they do not satisfy. Because they were not built to satisfy ultimately. Uh, Neil Postman, about 25 years ago, wrote a book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a fantastic book. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, Of the many quotable portions, I'll read you this from Neil Postman. He says, When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death. Death. Death of culture is a clear possibility. He's talking about America. All good things. I have good, I have good news for you this morning. All good things come from God. Every enjoyable thing comes from God in this life. And true contentment in this life only is ultimately found in God alone. First Timothy 6.6, 6, among many passages, says that godliness with contentment is great gain. James here says to us, you do not have because you do not ask. Ask who? Ask God the Father. Then he says, you do not have because you ask for the wrong things and you ask with the wrong motives. I think what we're seeing here is that pleasure-seeking, ungodly pleasure-seeking goes hand in hand with Prayerlessness. God is, however, the creator of all things. God is the creator of all true pleasure. He made it for you. There are many who would teach that God is some sort of a divine killjoy and he is out to ruin your fun. Not so. God is the author of fun. God is the author of joy. God is the author of pleasure. He made you the way that you are to desire it. But sin comes in and we look to the wrong things for the wrong things. James one seventeen at the beginning of the book, James says, every good and perfect gift is from God. The Psalms tease this reality out in so many beautiful ways. Psalm 16.11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 42.1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The idea being worship the gift giver, but don't worship the gift. Number two. God is calling us to look at our hearts and turn our hearts back to him. Number two, a heart entangled in the world's ways. Verses four through six, we see a heart entangled in the world's ways. The Bible says clearly, friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. Now, I think this is one of those passages that can immediately be uh, very misunderstood. So let me be clear that being a friend with those in the world, being friends with people in the world is in no way a sin. That is not what he is saying. What James is saying is that friendship with the world's wicked systems under sin and Satan, that is to be an enemy of God. And again here, James is talking throughout this passage to believers and calling believers to stop being friends with the world and to return to friendship with God. What a tragedy that Christians who are saved are acting yet again as enemies of God. That though they have been redeemed and reconciled, from a sin nature in which they were once enemies of God that they have turned back in some sense to those former wicked principles. And if you find in your heart that those are the realities this morning, I would just offer you the reality of the good news afresh. Here, Romans chapter five and verse 10, the Bible says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. A question for us to ask is, are you growing primarily, as you step back and look at your own heart and life, am I growing in friendship with the world in its sinfulness, or am I growing in friendship with my Savior? But even here, the Bible says that there is grace for those who will approach the Lord in humility. James is not unclear here, right? He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Remember all the way back in James chapter 2 and verse 23, it said this about Abraham. It said, Abraham believed God. He was credited the righteousness of Christ, and he was called a friend of God. What a gift, that you and I can be identified as friends of the Most High God. That is His grace to us. And James goes further and, and describes one particular aspect of this kindness and grace that God has, which may seem a little shocking at, at first. And that is, God says that His jealousy, the Holy Spirit's jealousy for you, His people, is a grace. How so? Jesus loves you so much that he does not want to see you wander back to those empty cisterns that hold no water and look to things that cannot fulfill. Jesus does not want to see you looking for love in all of the wrong places, but rather even when you wander, even when you rebel, even when you know it's wrong and you do it anyway. Anyone? Anyone? Just me. Okay. Jesus doesn't want you to look for love in the wrong places. Rather, he is jealous for you. He longs to see you come back to him. So James is saying, if you have wandered, come back. If you have befriended worldliness, there is grace. He invites you back. There is love at the cross. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, one of many passages that give us this reality. It says this, let us then with confidence Broken, weary sinners, saved by grace alone, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's grace for weakness in fighting temptation. Grace from God when we find ourselves worshiping creation rather than worshiping the Creator. Grace for selfishness, grace for lack of mercy, grace for refusal on our part to, to share the good news. This is daily grace from God for things that aren't sin but are just the struggles of this life. Grace from God for health struggles, grace from God for cancer, grace from God for depression and anxiety, grace from God for loneliness. There is grace from God to follow him, to do things that on our own we know that we cannot do. Grace from God to take the gospel into the streets. Grace from God to take the gospel across the ocean to other places where they've never even yet heard the good news. Grace from God. Number three, as we see God calling our hearts back to him, number three is this, a heart of arrogance before God a heart of arrogance before God. This is verses 7 through 10. I told you, this is not a tiptoe through the tulips kind of a passage here this morning. James is calling out an arrogant independence before God. I'm aware that I'm speaking primarily to a room full of Americans. We love the word independence, and rightfully so in certain contexts, but The Bible is commanding us to something different in our relationship to God. He has said, submit to God. Uh, Perhaps you are unaware, I cannot overstate to you how much the world, and particularly our culture, hates and despises any form of godly submission. Cannot stand it, and that ought to tell you why you should not follow that way but understand this, the Bible tells us that arrogance and self-lordship, a selfish independence, are satanic. This is the mindset that's sort of a hand-me-down from Satan. I know better than you do, God. Isn't that at the root of so many of our, our sins? I know better than you do, God. Or, God, in such and such a circumstance, you should have done it this way instead of the way that you chose to do it. James says resist this. James says resist the devil, stand against him, make war against him and against sin. How do we do that? Ephesians 6, a beautiful chapter of Scripture that tells us that there are certain weapons that we must fight with. And if we use the wrong weapons, we will lose the battle. But if we use his weapons, The devil will actually flee from you. What are those weapons? Ephesians 6 says that those weapons are truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. Ephesians chapter 6. And Satan will flee from you when you use God's weapons. But the Bible has more to say about this this heart of arrogance before God because even in the conviction, there is an invitation. It says, draw near in humble dependence to God. Wherever you are spiritually this morning, you would say, I've never asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. You'd say, I've been a Christian for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Let today afresh be your declaration of dependence on King Jesus. Lord Jesus, with joy in my heart, I cannot do this on my own. You have everything that I need. You are everything I need. I want you. I'm sorry for the ways that I've made it about myself. I'm sorry for the ways that I've tried to do it my way. Forgive me. I am declaring my dependence on you, Jesus. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you is James language We have the same picture in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son and that moment when the prodigal, disobedient, rebellious son, who foolishly spent all that he had, returns to his loving father and the loving father sprints down the road to embrace his wayward son, has a celebration to rejoice that his wayward son has come home. In the end, the prodigal son humbled himself before God and the father lifted him up. What a promise. That God says, humble yourself before me and I will exalt you. See, the reality is nobody comes to Christ who does not first bend their knee before King Jesus. And yet the good news of the gospel is that we reign with him. That we will enjoy the beauties and the perfection of the throne room of heaven and will worship King Jesus for all eternity. See, the gospel leads us to see God for who he is in grace and truth and who we are as sinners in need of that grace. The Bible says, purify your hearts. It says, mourn and grieve your sin. This does not mean that to be a Christian is to hate your life and to be miserable all the time. It is asking a question, does your sin cause you grief? Does it make you sad when you consider the ways that you have offended a holy God? Does it make you sad when you knew that was wrong and you did it anyway? When you knew that God loves you and has a better plan for your life? And you did it your way and it was the wrong way. Does that bring grief? That's the question that James is asking you to check your heart. And I would say to you specifically, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior this morning, one of the many ways that, uh, that this is expressed as we look at the Scripture is the ABCs. The ABCs admit, A, that you're a sinner. It's that simple. Well, Jesus, I admit that I have not done the things that I should have done. And I do the things that I shouldn't do. I admit that I'm a sinner. And B, I believe that Jesus came to save me from my sins. I believe that Jesus can save me and that I can't save myself. And C, I'm calling upon you. I'm actively saying, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I'm calling upon you. Forgive me for my sins. Make me new. Inherent in that is repentance, turning away from those sins and and turning to Jesus and saying, I want to do it your way from now on. Number four, as James asks the church to check their hearts, number four is this, a heart of judgmentalism towards brothers. We see this in verses 11 and 12, a heart of judgmentalism towards brothers, James is not unclear in what he says here. Don't engage in judgment. And and to be very clear as I walk us through this, I'm gonna use the word judgmentalism to describe that sinful act. Um, He gives us a couple different ways that this looks. He says, don't speak evil against each other. Don't slander someone. Don't lie about a brother or sister in Christ. Not that you should slander or lie about those outside the faith, but he is particularly talking about sinning against brothers and sisters within the church. But the command here also forbids any talk, whether it's true or not, that is meant to tear down a brother or a sister. Okay, so I think all of us are happy to acknowledge that talking behind someone's back is gossip and is wrong, but there are many among us who will think, well, as long as I am tearing that person down face-to-face, it must be okay, It is not, in case we were unclear. He goes on to say, don't exalt yourself above the law of God. Humble yourself. Remember where you are in this story. God is the judge. God is the lawgiver. His judgments are perfect. His law is perfect. Do not usurp his authority or think that you have the capacity to do so. But let's dig a little deeper here because as we consider, well, how do I in a loving way approach sins in a brother or sister's life? What does that look like? I'm gonna suggest it to you this way. God commands godly discernment of people while pointing them to the grace of Jesus. God commands that we have wise discernment of other people while simultaneously pointing them to his grace. James is not saying Christians are never to make judgments about others. Now, there is the don't judge me crowd, right? We've all heard the the ideas of don't judge me. You can't judge me. And They have a particular verse in in Scripture. I find it is usually the only one that they know, and they love to quote that verse, and that is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 when Jesus says, this is the NIV, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Don't judge me. And the idea behind that is that if you say anything at all of any kind about anything that I may or may not be doing wrong, then God is going to smite you. And this is what I would say in response to that. Do not cherry pick the scripture. Do not flip open the Bible, find the one verse that you like, rip it out of the context of what Jesus is actually teaching in this sermon and make it say what you want it to say. If we go forward two verses, Jesus continues on this incredibly important teaching and says this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's the idea here. You are so hypocritical that you're willing to point out the slight flaw in someone else's life, but you're totally ignorant and ignoring the major sin in your own life. That is what Jesus is specifically calling out as wrong. Uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says this. uh, I find it extremely helpful. He says this, Jesus does not forbid judgment. Rather, he forbids flagrant sinners from exercising it while refusing to deal with the sin in their own lives. If we continue through this exact same scene here of Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter seven, verse 15, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Well, how would you know if they are false prophets if you do not discern or rightly judge is what they are saying true or not true? Verse 16, Jesus says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Well, what is assessing someone's fruit other than in a godly way discerning, or dare I say, judging what they are doing? Still not convinced? I'll give you this one. John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Listen to what Jesus is saying there. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. So I would say to you again, God forbids judgmentalism. That is a critical and a hypocritical spirit lacking grace to others and that seeks to actively destroy them while ignoring the sin in their own lives. Okay, so if my friend is standing on the railroad tracks and the train is coming, he may may say to me, don't judge me. I am still going to tell him to get off the tracks. Okay? There is a way to have a right judgment without judgmentalism, and that is what James is teaching to the church. Now, can that be difficult and complex? Certainly at times. I think if we step back again here, we can, we can thank God that God does not judge us the way that we tend to judge one another. God's justice, God's judgments are based in truth, in true justice. There is never injustice with God. And yet the reality is that when I stand before the throne of heaven one day and were and God to ask me, why should I let you into heaven? The answer is not my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. My answer to that question is Jesus died in my place. A free gift of grace and the substitutionary atonement Jesus substituted for me. I deserved judgment. I deserved justice. And Jesus took 100% of it in my place. And not just that. He took my sins. He gifted me his perfect righteousness so that I can stand before God one day confident, says Hebrews chapter 4, in his grace towards me that I can spend eternity in a very real place called heaven. Thank God that that is how God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Fifth and finally, the church is called to look at their hearts and look at a heart that presumes to be in control. A heart that presumes to be in control. And we see this at the end, verses 13 through 17. Even just this week, The events of the week with the storm coming through, this reality rings true. Let us not be a people who presume that we are in control, that my will somehow supersedes God's will. Uh, James, in fact, takes it particularly in the area of, he's saying, don't assume it is God's will that you are going to make money or that you are going to be prosperous, is the particular nuance that he teases out here. God has not promised to make you financially wealthy. The reality is that we ought to consider and always submit ourselves and be aware of God's will over our own. In fact, some would say that ignoring God's will is in itself a sort of a practical atheism. Far be it from the heart of a follower of Jesus. And James says, You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, you have no idea. Uh, None of us, two weeks ago, except for Mike's weather page, none of us knew that a hurricane was coming. Uh, McCartney and I earlier this week, as we were planning and preparing for our gathering of worship here right now, we had sort of a plan A, if there's electricity in the building, we'll do such and such. And plan B, uh, we'll have to do such and such. But the reality was, it was ultimately always going to be determined by the Lord's will. Not mine. So I'm grateful to the Lord that we are here gathered this morning, but I want to continually repent of the notion that I am in control. If you are wondering if you have a control idol, let me just help you. You do. We all have that inherently built into our hearts, and James gives us some new language. James says, this is what you should say as you approach the questions of life. You should approach them by saying, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills it. My good friend, Brian Keene, anytime we make a plan, he almost always will end his sentence by saying, if the Lord wills. And that is not Brian's idea. He got that from the scripture. Uh, Paul, as well, has this constant statement, one of many places in the New Testament, Acts 18, 21. But on taking leave of them, he, Paul, said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. If the Lord wills, in the ordinary, in the mundane, in the daily of our lives, as well as in the big... Big decisions of life. If the Lord wills, what is his will? I want to submit myself to his will. The big questions too, where will I live? Who will I marry? What will my career be? What kind of school should I attend? How will I raise my family? What will I do with the time that God has gifted me? Our heart should say, according to God's perfect leading and according to God's perfect will, that is how I will proceed. Right? It's the heart that says, I don't know the future, but I know the one who holds the future, and I am happy to let him lead. I am happy to admit where I am not in control. I am happy to hold loosely to my plans, my prosperity, because his purposes are more important. So as you consider the Lord's will, is he calling you out of your comfort to go and serve him in some new capacity or new place is he calling you to serve someone in particular is he in his will calling you to suffer with others is he calling you to open your mouth and share the good news of salvation by grace with others god is challenging us to to look at our hearts this morning as a church as individuals all of it must be saturated in God's grace. There is forgiveness for where we fail, and there is power. The grace that saves us is the grace that changes us, that every day we can turn our hearts more and more afresh, away from sin, away from this world, into our loving Savior, Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together.